0: Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word. First, to Matthew chapter 27. We're just going to read two verses there. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 834. If you're able to put a finger in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, uh, that'll be our main passage this morning. First, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. This so is speaking about the moment of Christ's death on the cross. We read this, beloved saints of God, hear his word. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali Eli, lama thani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you can, uh, please join me now in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 11. We're going to start with verse 8 and read through verse 8 of chapter 12. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 559. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 8 through 12, verse 8. Again, this is God's Word. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. And the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond trees blossom. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask that his blessing would be upon us as we spend our time in it this morning. Heavenly Father, eternal God, you have told us that all flesh is like grass, it is a breath, and then it is gone. And yet in our hands we hold something eternal, something that was around long before us and will be around long after us. For your word abides forever. Grant that we would give our undivided attention to it, that we would be receptive to all it has to say, that our beliefs, our understanding, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. We ask this all in the name of your Son, who is the word made flesh. Amen. You may be seated. Age is interesting, and when it comes to age, there are typically three things you don't want to call people. You don't want to call somebody young. Young people don't like to be called young because it's condescending. It exudes the idea that they are inexperienced and it reminds them of all the restrictions they have, that so much of life is off-limits. When you're young, you can't wait to be older, with no one telling you what to do, no more school when you can be free. And so the first thing you want to avoid, don't call young people young. The second thing you don't want to do is call old people old. No one likes to be called old because it's condescending. It means that the best years are behind them. It reminds them that they are growing weaker. Their hearing is going. Everything is harder. And they are always in pain. When you're old, you just wish you were young again with no one telling you to watch what you eat. No more constant doctor's appointments. You just want to be free. So don't call old people old. Now there's one more thing you need to be careful not to do. People don't like to be called middle-aged because it's condescending. It says that you're no longer young. It reminds them that half their lives are over. You'll just drive them to admit that they have not accomplished all that they thought they would do, and you'll bring on a midlife crisis. They're going to go and dye their hair, buy a sports car, and live in denial because they feel trapped in a thankless job. They wish they could either be young again or retire. No bosses, constantly telling them what to do and then telling them that it wasn't enough. They just want to be free. So don't call people Middle aged. Don't call them young, don't call them old, and don't call them middle aged. It kind of covers it all, right? But what does that teach us really but that we are a people who are hopelessly discontent? The grass is always greener. On the other side, we are prone to focus on what we wish we had rather than what we do have. We look at others and we think only about the good they have and not their hardships. Really, we always think that we should have it better. We should have all good and no hard. All comfort, no pain. Simply put, our problem is a deep sense of entitlement, which is really just another way of saying arrogance. We struggle to be content with the variety of experiences that we have in life and the circumstances that life brings. Each of us believes that we are the exception and should have only strength and wisdom, freedom and security, light, but no darkness. What we need is to change our focus from self to God, from what we don't have to what we do have, from entitlement to gratitude. But much easier said than done, right? But the time to start is now. What we're going to see in our passage this morning as we're drawing ever so close to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes is that living life in the pursuit of God will allow you to live a life where you can actually come to its end and face death with peace. And that's really what we desire, if we're honest, is to come to that last day with a sense of peace, not regret. And that's what we have to look at uh, in our passage this morning, much of our passage is given to the gloomy reality that death is coming for all of us, not some of us. Chapter 12, verse 1, talks about the coming evil days. And evil in this context doesn't mean full of rebellion uh, or disobedience to God. Uh, Evil... Uh, Can mean, uh, especially in the Hebrew, uh, unpleasant, hard, or painful. There are days coming, Ecclesiastes is saying, that will be all but devoid of pleasure. The sun will set and it will not be replaced with the moon and the stars illumining the dark sky. That final sunset is coming. And it will be total darkness. Now, in the Bible, these are typically images for the last day. Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, and Ezekiel all employ this idea of a sunless, moonless, and starless sky coming on the last day. All those luminaries will say their final goodbye. They'll stop shining. And the dark, the sky, and our world will be completely dark. That's a... Scary image, but Solomon in Ecclesiastes is taking those images and applying them to our last day. Because what is true for humanity as a whole is true for each of us individually. A day is coming when we will breathe our last, when your eyes will close never to open again and your body will return to the earth, and your spirit will stand before your creator. The broken vessels losing their contents in chapter 12, verse 6, are, are pictures of our bodies that will one day be broken. The water that comes out of the broken pot is like our lives that will leave our broken bodies. Ignore that reality all you want. It won't make it go away. This is the end of all flesh. Every single person in this room will face it. Ready or not, prepared or unprepared, all will die Ignoring reality doesn't change reality. And what's more, is it will be here far sooner than you expect. When was the last time you sat down with somebody in their 80s or 90s and they said something like, you know, life just went so much slower than I expected? Life is short. That's the context of our passage. I've been saying since we began this book that the word translated vanity is really the word for breath or mist. And throughout the Bible, it's used to invoke that idea that something is fleeting or it's temporary. And in Ecclesiastes, it's saying all of life is short, it's fleeting. Chapter 11, verse 8, Every per, even if a person lives many years, it's saying, it's still short. Chapter 11, verse 10, youth and the dawn of life, they're fleeting, they're short-lived. Chapter 12, verse 8, is really just saying, a breath of a breath, all your days are but a breath. And tucked into these reminders of coming death, are some images that are meant to make us pause in chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. The keepers of the house tremble. The men who were once strong are stooped over. Those who are grinding flowers stop. Onlookers peek out at the streets from behind curtains. It's the image of a funeral procession coming by. The mourners going along and there's this Quietness on the streets of the village, the town. Even the birds seem to understand the heaviness of the situation and they stop singing. And it's just quiet, eerily quiet. Because when death makes its presence known, people get quiet. We can't help but feel robbed of so much potential. In fact, I think that's what's going on with that image of the almond tree and the grasshopper in verse 5. The idea is, is the, the, the almond tree blossoms. The harvest is at hand, we think. But before we can harvest the grasshopper and the locust, they come and they seal that harvest away. They indulge so much that they have to drag themselves away from the crop. And we sit there empty-handed. And all that's left is this sense of being robbed, violated. And we ask, what now? This is what death does to us. We've been robbed. We wonder what it's all about. Are we ready when our time comes? Sober reflection upon death is good if we are honest with ourselves. It's really when death shows up that we really allow ourselves to think about those ultimate issues that we so enjoy ignoring. Because when death shows up, the noise stops, the distractions cease, and the truly important questions refuse to be silenced any longer. And when that happens, you can either try to ignore those questions until life gets back to normal, or you can do the unthinkable. You can be honest. You can admit that life is short that the strength of youth is fleeting, that death is coming and it will be here far sooner than you could imagine. And ask yourself, are you ready? Before we get to what it means to be ready, I want to pause here because I think the temptation for us when we ask these questions, when we think about death, is to play the victim. We're good at that. Whenever things don't go our way, we like to throw a tantrum and accuse life of being unfair. And eventually, we turn to heaven and we say something like, you know what, if there is a God, he's cold and he's harsh. For how could a loving God allow so much pain and suffering and misery And we comfort ourselves with the lie that that we can't be that bad because after all, we're more loving than God is, if he even exists. And then we think to ourselves, the last day won't be that bad because after all, who has more explaining to do? Me or the God who allows all this pain and suffering and misery? And smug and self-satisfied, we sit back quite pleased with ourselves and we return to our stupor and we put those questions away so we don't have to think about them until death shows up again. The assumption with those is that God doesn't know what it's like to endure hardships, to live the life we live, to, to endure its pains and its miseries. He doesn't understand what it's like to have life cut short. He can't identify with the mistreated. He's never had to face death. But such thoughts are as misguided as they are self-centered. Because 2,000 years ago, the eternal God, who knows no beginning and no end, for whom A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The God who knows no sin and no unrighteousness, he entered into our world. He took on flesh and blood, and he became man. He embraced the helplessness of infancy And he endured the condescension of being told, You're too young to know what you know. He was misunderstood, he was mistreated. He alone truly knew what it meant for life to be unfair. And at every point in that short life of his, he endured the opposite of what he deserved. Even when people praised him, more often than not, it was an attempt to use him and manipulate him for their own selfish gain. The reality isn't that God doesn't understand what it's like to endure life's hardships The reality is that he knows it better than we do. And that includes what it means for life to be fleeting, to be the merest of breaths. Because while he was still young, a mere 33 years old, his mistreatment came to a climax. Dragged before a sham of a justice system, he was lied about, so shamelessly that even the Gentile politician Pilate could see through the charges and find nothing wrong. But that didn't matter because Pilate was more afraid of an angry mob than he was about doing something that was wrong. He attempted to wash his hands of his guilt, but water can't wash guilt away. And so he handed Jesus over to the angry mob who dragged him out and beat him, spit upon him, mocked him and made him carry a cross, the instrument of his own murder, to his rendezvous with death. And on that hillside, aptly named the skull, just outside of Jerusalem, they put the Lord of life to death. And as they did, as he breathed his last, as his short life came to an end, what happened? The sun and the moon and the light and the stars were darkened. It's as if the last day made an appearance before its time. And in those three hours of darkness, those present were able to catch the end of all mankind. This is where we are all headed. This is the last day, the reality that awaits us. And in that moment, Jesus felt the full force of his father's wrath raining down upon him. In the deepest agony anyone will ever undergo, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that starless black sky was but a mirror of what his soul was enduring at that moment. But here's the thing. He could have avoided it. Yes, he was murdered, but he allowed it to happen. I wrote a a post for our church blog last week making this point the young man who walked into the synagogue in San Diego a few weeks ago and murdered Laurie Gilbert Kay was dead wrong about the cross he accused the Jews of killing Jesus and being guilty for his murder and the glimmer of truth It was in Jerusalem at the hands of the Jews. But Jesus was not on the cross because it couldn't be avoided. He was not outsmarted. He was not outmaneuvered. Before that day ever came, he told his disciples, he boldly proclaimed that he would lay down his life freely and that no one takes it from him. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. I do this of my own accord. No one takes it from me. He wanted them to know. And why? Why was he so willing to lay down his life at such a young age and in such a horrendous manner? The answer is because someone had to die. It was the just punishment for rebellion against God. Because God cannot be good and not punish sin. It would be like a society who chooses not to punish murderers and rapists and thieves and swindlers. That wouldn't be a good and just society. It would be the epitome of evil. God can't be good and not punish rebellion. And so Jesus had two options. He could either leave us to pay the debt we owed ourselves, death, not just physical, but but eternal death and hell, or he could volunteer to pay it in our place. He could allow the lights to go dark for him so that they might not go dark for us, not ultimately, not eternally. You see, I can't blame the Jewish people for the death of Jesus, because my sin put him there. And so did yours. If you want to point a finger of blame for the murder of Jesus, point no place else than in the mirror. And Jesus' willingness to suffer all of that for us shows us what he valued. See, values are interesting. Values are deeper than beliefs. Churches can share beliefs but differ in values. Values are about priorities, where you spend your time, your resources, your energy. Values are what drive your day to day life. Hopefully, as a church, our values are Jesus, grace, forgiveness, salvation, people, relationships. But what does Jesus' short life and horrific death reveal about his values? It shows us that there were things that he valued more than 80 or 90 years of comfort. More than an easy life. It shows us that he valued the the eternal over the temporary. What was right over what was expedient. What was loving over what was gratifying. But ultimately... It shows you that he values you. Because you are what drove him to endure such mistreatment. You are what motivated him to bear his own father's wrath. Your salvation was more important to him than his own comfort, than his own life. How do we live in light of that? How do we live knowing that our lives are but a mere breath that will be gone before we could ever imagine? How do we live knowing that a day is coming when the lights will go dark? And how do we embrace each stage of life, whether that be youth, midlife, or old age? Well, to start with, We need to understand the positives of each stage and focus on those for what they are, gifts from God. In Proverbs, God says this, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. The point is that youth have the benefit of physical strength, but they lack experience. Old age has the benefit of experience, but lacks strength. Midlife, well, the Proverbs are silent about the benefit of that. Uh, But midlife is that road of transition. Where we note that our strength is starting to fade, but our wisdom is increasing. And if you only focus on what you wish you had rather than what you do have, you will be a miserable whiner. But worse than that, you'll neglect your gifts, your blessings, your strengths. You will waste your youth, your midlife, and your old age. Beloved, I know the temptation far too well. I'm constantly looking at what is next rather than what is Simply put, I listen far too much to the 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 lies of the devil rather than God's wisdom. The last three chapters, of verse eleven, sorry, the last three uh, last three verses of chapter eleven, have some helpful guidance for the young. Rejoice, it says in verse eight, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. I think counsel like this strikes us as odd. We think joy is involuntary, that it just happens to us or it doesn't. But God commands it. The reason we think joy is involuntary is because we think, or we tend to find joy in things that are trite. Because to take joy in the deep, substantive things, things that delight God... Takes training, practice, discipline, and meditation. It requires that we discipline ourselves to focus on things like God's power, His sovereignty, not on things we wish we could control and change and shape into our own image. If you focus on changing the world to your own plan, you'll never find joy. But if you learn to delight in the God who valued your salvation above his own comfort, no one will be able to rob that joy from you. Verse 9 of chapter 11 might be a bit hard to understand at verse at first. On the one hand it says walk in the ways of your heart and then it says for these things God will bring you into judgment. <laughs> It's not saying God's going to punish you no matter what you do, so you might as well enjoy your sin. It's saying that life is not just meant to be endured, but enjoyed. And it's acknowledging that you can't live without regard for God. It's really continuing what began in verse 8. Delight yourself in God and enjoy life. It's like what Augustine famously said. Love God... And do what you want. The assumption is that your love for God will transform your values. And you'll learn to enjoy and delight in things that honor God. You'll delight in what delights Him. And then you'll find joy even in the midst of your short life filled with hardships. The first verse of chapter 12 drives us home by saying, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And I don't think he's saying, Then you can forget God when you're old. Rather, I think he's acknowledging that we end the way we begin. The temptation for the young is to see their strength and arrogantly think they don't need help. They don't need God. They are, after all, self-reliant. Because when everything is going well, our temptation is to think that the credit belongs to us. We don't remember our Creator in the days of our youth. But what happens when we get old and our strength fades? Do we suddenly reach out for God, realizing our need? No, Because we've established a pattern of competition with God rather than a pattern of reliance. And so, when the weakness of old age comes, when those dark days are at hand and our strength is lost, what do we do? We cry out that God is against us. We see Him as a rival who has found a way to steal what is rightfully ours, the strength of our youth. And so the arrogance of youth is replaced by the bitterness of old age. If you want to remember God when you're old, you need to start when you're young. One of the things that passages like this remind us is the need to take each day as it comes. We want to know the end from the beginning. We want to have all the blessings at the same time. We want strength and experience. And passages like this tell us that we can't do that. One step at a time. One day at a time. Each day for what it is. One of the ways God teaches us to do that Is through the reality of eating. Ever asked, wondered why God makes us need food? He made us need food for a reason. He could have made it so that we didn't need food, we just had all the energy we needed. But He made us need it. And I think one of the reasons is to teach us to take one day at a time. You cannot eat all the food you need for the rest of your life at once. You can't even eat for the rest of the year, the rest of the month, or the rest of the week. Really, you can't, no matter how much some of you try, eat for an entire day in one meal. We must return over and over again and over again to the table and eat. And that teaches us a little bit about life. You can't eat for tomorrow, just today, as if God is saying, let today be today. Let tomorrow be tomorrow. Today, focus on what's before you. Food teaches us that, doesn't it? So it is with the stages of life. When you're young, don't focus on being old. When you're old, don't wish you were young. And when you're midlife, don't wish you could just be anything else. As with food, take each day as it comes and enjoy it. And any wonder then that god calls us each week to eat at his table and there he reminds us that life is like eating one day at a time blessing to be enjoyed each day but the table also reminds us about what he values the bread and the wine Pictures of his body and blood given in death on the cross are reminders of his short life and his horrific death. But they remind us of what truly matters. They teach us to remember our Creator all the days of our life, to find joy in his gifts because we know that he did this for us because we are what he values. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift today. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have told us that life is short and that should we number our days, we would understand not to live with the delusion that the lights will never go dark. More than this, that we should remember you in the days of our youth, so that we might delight in you in every stage of life. Help us to do that. Help us to see each day for what it is, a gift from you. And help us to not be discontent, but to live appropriately for wherever we are, not simply wishing we were somewhere else. Father, we confess that we cannot do this on our own. We need your grace, your strength, and yes, your perspective. Grant us all these things as you make us more like your Son, in whom we pray, amen.